Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. Wabanaki Windows is the monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland uh, and in partnership with WMPG in Portland, Maine. Today is the third show in part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. Our guests today are Professors Harold Prince and Dan Ranko. Professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is Distinguished Professor of Anthropology and an Emeritus at Kansas State University. Professor Dan Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and Professor of Anthropology and Chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine, Orono. The land claims was a suit against the state of Maine by the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Maliseet tribes for around two thirds of the state of Maine. Previously, we discussed what was going on in the rest of Indian country at the time of the Settlement Act, the condition of the Maine tribes at the time, the economic environment, civil rights report, and the abolishment of the Department of Indian Affairs by the state of Maine after the settlement. Today, we will continue to look at the Land Claim Settlement Act this act defines the present relationship between the Wabanaki tribes and the state of Maine. I wanna follow a thread from the sale of the four townships in 1834 to the Maine Indian Land Claims Act of 1980. There's a synergy here and I want us to focus on that so we can clearly understand why the Settlement Act was allowed to become law and who really benefited. So let's go back to the Dean letter of 1829 and the plan he proposed to the state. So back then, I'm just gonna talk about these topics of his letter and then we can just jump in and go from there. Uh, now in Dean's letter, he laid out um, a, a number of coercive things to do. Uh, one of those things was to stay in one place. Another was to have state take over tribal affairs. Another was to sell their lands to support them in whatever programs the state came up with. They wanted to sell their land so that it could you know, support their, their efforts to control and break up their lands into family lots and then force them uh, to work as farmers. So um, we'll start there. And then um, we can go, to, next we'll go to the property report. But uh, um, who wants to start first? I'll start. Of course <laughs> you will, Donna. Darren. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Donna. And it's uh, great to be joining you both again. And, um, you know, I, I think this um, control factor um, is, is a very, it, it's into the DNA of the state's relations with the tribes, for sure. Um, you know, and some, some of the earliest laws passed by the state of Maine were to kind of regulate, you, you know, even in 1821, regulate sort of the lives of Indians and there are sort of some histories there. It's, um, it, it's kind of remarkable once you see just how many laws <laughs> the state passes just to regulate Indian life. Um, um, 
so I think that that that's, shouldn't be that surprising to people um, in, in that regard. I I, I also I, I think also this this notion it's it's people have to understand in the 1820s how much of this, what is now the state of Maine, it, it was still kind of Wabanaki space. The, you know, the settlements, so many of the settlements were still coastal and um, um, all, all of that. There, there was, you know, um, uh, up through the, the four townships, you know, um, there were, is you know, and you see this in the surveys of of the lands across the state, you know, the 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 treat survey and, and and those sorts of things where, you know, villages are marked and native and non-native locations of houses even is marked in those surveys. And and it's remarkable, I think, thinking back then just how for the state and in regard to the state, they're they are purposely setting up a structure that was not you know, the actuality per se, but it was, and I think that's why Dean's letter is so remarkable because it, it's aspirational. Like it, it's, it sets out the plan. And then in the 19th century, it's for over a variety of, uh, in a variety of ways, the states executes it repeatedly, including, you know, uh, not just the four townships, but also the, you know, closing of the commons, the hunting, the, you know, the things that we've talked about in, 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 the, in the show over, over sort of a, a pretty dramatic period um, from the 1840s, uh, 1830s, 1840s to uh, the turn of the 20th century. Um, so I think, you know, it, it is, it is, you know, to see a letter kind of lay out a, and it's not, these aren't new concepts in terms of the settler colonialism in the way that um, it is to fix the location, break up the 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 the, the land and 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 force people into um, cultural life ways that are uh, foreign to them um, and you know really punish the people who are trying to continue to live in the in the in the traditional ways of, of seasonal rounds, which um, is um, it requires more land <laughs> in terms of all, all these things. So I, I think it's, what I think is remarkable about that letter is just that plan and that it's so aspirational. Um, and, you know, that dramatic shift for how we as Wabanaki people would even just basically live our lives and feed ourselves, just sort of that vision, which uh, again was on the state's behalf, uh, aspirational in in 1829 whenever he wrote that yeah Harold yeah um, regarding uh, Dean um, it's maybe useful to put him back into his own historical perspective and I was just uh, looking at um, what preceded uh, Dean's um, letter as an agent for the state and that is, of course, uh, before the sale, as you indicated earlier, Donna, uh, before the sale, forced sale, I should say, of the four townships, uh, but it's after two earlier equally forced sales, namely the one of 1796 and 1818. Um, before 1796, um, there was continuous pressure on the Penobscot nation to uh, sell their land and to um, extinct, have their Aboriginal title to all the lands above the First Falls, um, where now is Eddington Bend, 
uh, their uh, Aboriginal claims to that territory to have that um, surrendered and extinguished by treaty. That was the uh, whole idea. And there's a lot of shenanigans that have been going on. But one of the things that may be um, useful to um, think of is that General Benjamin Lincoln, who um, uh, was honored, of course, with the town of Lincoln being named after him uh, in that uh, Penobscot uh, tribal territory, um, that uh, he was the uh, Secretary of War during the uh, Revolutionary War and was a very close friend of Henry Knox. And he had been sent to, um, to negotiate a early treaty that was refused by the Penobscot uh, in, the, uh, 80, in the 1780s. Now, I'd just like to read a short section from Benjamin Lincoln to give the Dean letter some uh, historical context. And this is um, what Lincoln wrote in 1788. Um, that's about, uh, what is it, eight years before the finalizing of the treaty when the, the Penobscot realized they had no option but to sign. But he wrote to the newly elected uh, Governor Hancock uh, regarding the recent history and status of the, the state's treaty negotiations with the Penobscot and had noted that he had delivered the agreed upon goods and left a quit claim deed for the tribe to sign. He then explains, Lincoln does to Hancock, that the Penobscots were now ignoring the agreement and had not claimed the goods or signed the deed. And he urged state action, Massachusetts in this case, to prevent hostilities that, quote, would put a great check, if not a total stop, to the sale of land in that country, end quote. Less than two weeks later, impatient with the Penobscot chiefs unwilling to accept the terms predetermined by his government in Boston, but reluctant to invade and conquer an unknown wilderness above the falls, Hancock calculated the costs and wrote on March 17, 1788, quote, it appears that the line of property between the Commonwealth's land and those of the Penobscot tribe of Indians is not formally settled. This is of great consequence to the Commonwealth, for though perhaps a very small force may subdue or extirpate that tribe of natives, if they should commence hostilities, yet the affecting it would be more expensive and troublesome than completing a treaty respecting their lands can be. I need not observe that it is much more consistent with humanity to conciliate their affections than to subdue them by force." End quote. So the reality was not just the vigilantes on pressuring uh, on all the sides um, uh, downriver to go upriver to get their hands on the uh, timber, uh, as well as the, um, the great proprietors uh, who did the same thing. They all were heavily investing um, and speculating about um, becoming rich. Um, we've mentioned for the Kennebec Valley, uh, people like uh, Governor James Bowden, uh, but he was not the only one. There was a lot of very powerful, wealthy men who had great timber interests and saw um, the dollar signs, if you will, um, before them. And so the question was now whether or not the chiefs would agree to sign that deed, which would leave them for a very small section of, of their claimed lands. Uh, if you look at the, the, the territory that Chief Orono and um, Orsong Neptune, uh, the, as the second chief, war chief, what the, the other chiefs, what they claimed was about 3 million acres, um, if my calculation is correct, based on all the territory above the first falls. Uh, what these 
state finally consented to was um, about, what is it, uh, 24 townships uh, do the calculation here, uh, which is only a fraction of 3 million acres. And um, that of that, uh, the immediately the first 10 townships, almost half, was then sold in 1796. And then this, the other um, 10 turned out later to be nine because of the complexity of the land survey. Um, was then for sale in 1818. Um, and then the leftover, as you know, was then sold in 1833. And the letter by Dean is placed in that context of massive erosion, first by trying to intimidate the Penobscot into the fact that they had no Aboriginal title to the 3 million acres above the first falls, which is what Orono and Neptune and the other chiefs asserted. So their first compromise with the knife on their throat was made in 1796. Then again, with great poverty threatening them uh, in 1818, in the wake of very bad uh, summer, where the harvest had been destroyed because of a um, uh, almost no sun. There was the so-called um, uh, summer without sun, I think it was called. Uh, so the crop uh, had, uh, which they did have, food gardens uh, failed. And uh, Sullivan, even earlier, the Attorney General of Massachusetts, had a explicit design to choke the Penobscot off to make them dependent first, and then when they were dependent, that they um, uh, would lose their ability to uh, control their own destiny. So Dean is simply um, a, uh, an, a continuation of actually a much more violent, uh, ferocious uh, history uh, that in which the Penobscot, as you well know, of course, uh, and the other Wabanaki and all the indigenous peoples uh, in uh, what's now the United States were subject to uh, genocidal campaigns. So uh, the genocide was no longer really necessary because they were expected to uh, become extinct through um, decimation through cholera and all uh, the flu and you name it. Um, so this was really a stopgap measure, if you will, um, that within two, three generations would be solved simply because the tribes would cease to exist. Right, so uh, it, Dean didn't really, or you're saying Dean didn't really conceive this all by himself. It was sort of in motion when he wrote this letter. Then he was just sort of clarifying or putting into a clear writing, I don't know, order or whatever, how to do, how to accomplish what was first started. Yeah, just a, a quick follow-up, you, you're absolutely right. And in that regard, Maine is true to his motto, there you go, because what Dean is basically presaging, uh, foretelling, if you will, which is a federal policy uh, as articulated in the Dawes Act. Uh, so the breakup of uh, communal property into um, private property was a key element that is uh, linked in the um, traditional European mindset of um, progress. So the idea that private property, as opposed to so-called curse of the commons, right, that people will not um, uh, work hard for in a, in a communal uh, setting uh, for uh, uh, cultivating the land and becoming more productive, that of course led, um, as you well know, in, in Oklahoma, uh, to these incredible land rushes after the Dawes Act and had allocated land to the individual families. There was a lot of land over, and that led to the Cherokee Strip and the whole thing, and these incredible land rushes 
uh, there, but that happened, of course, in the in the 1880s, 1890s. So Dean, in many ways, is uh, ahead of his time in terms of what became federal policy. Yeah, I was almost kind of thinking that you know Maine sort of led the way in this in these federal policies, and and they they did have federal players sort of involved in what was happening in Maine. So they just kind of carried things over to the federal level. Is, is that correct, you think, Harold? You... Yes, uh, very much. Um, and it's also the, uh, to use the term that zeitgeist, right? It's the spirit of the times. Uh, this is the time of Darwin's uh, theory, is the time of time also of Marxist uh, theory, all in the 19th century. And here you see this idea about uh, both evolution, social evolution, in the case of Herbert Spencer, building on the same kind of idea, uh, and uh, uh, the Marxian idea that capitalism as a follow-up to feudalism, which is, was, was a very different type of uh, land ownership uh, and political arrangement structure, uh, that that would then give way to um, a communalism or communism, um, as the highest stage of socialism and the withering away of the state. So that would be this happy future that he envisioned that we all know uh, was a fiction with tragic consequences. And um, uh, that's not because Marx was not a brilliant scholar, he was, but as a visionary, it was more of a dream that he had than a, uh, than a accurate prediction. And the horrors of uh, Stalinist Russia, I think, um, are well known, and so or Maoist China. Um, so, uh, but in this case, the idea was that anything that was still held in communal property, and not and not by the state, that the self-governing villages, also in Europe, would uh, get rid of their communal uh, lands. And um, so that's the uh, that happened in my own country. Um, about the same time in the 1860s, 1870s, the so-called marker laws, where uh, great proprietors would take down the land that the villages were forced to give up as communal land. So it's a very interesting thing. And that's only why I mentioned the zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the times, because you have to put all these people into the context of that, uh, that uh, kind of thinking about universal history, moving in stages toward with a beginning, a middle and an end. It was a grand narrative, a little bit like in the Bible with the book of Genesis and the apocalypse at the end. Uh, but in this case, it would be a happy ending that a lot of people would envision. <clears throat> okay. Um, I think that, you know, Dean has said in his letter that he, he saw two, two ways of accomplishing this. You know, the first one was the coercive system that we, we're talking about. And then he and then he says that you know the and another another way that we haven't really tried, we haven't looked at, uh, is to take away all of these laws that we're putting them under, and just let them go just like any white people would, let them own their own land in severalty, let them you know, and uh, any change to to what we're doing now is is a good change because it's you know what we've been doing isn't working so. Let's do this other thing. I think that uh, the state didn't decided not to do the other thing, but to keep on with the control and then and just try to eradicate uh, tribal members. Um, so I, that's my 
reading on that second? Do you, do you think that that's a, a true understanding of that, Harold? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm looking at that clause in the letter. There, there are about two courses which have been untried with them. One is coercion, the other is to operate upon their pride by elevating them. I mean, he doesn't say this, but as you mentioned, Donna, it's like, you know, kind of like white people, I think is sort of the ellipsis left out of that. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, so, some of that works together, you know, it, the, the idea that, um, you know, sort of, erasing treaties and 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 just sort of um what what is otherwise called termination that that's not a that's not a just let it be kind of situation that's that's a that's that's also a transformation uh in terms of the um the lands and and rights and and the 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 relationships with treaties which um you know then as now um folks, um, you know, in the tribes, you know, still believed in, talk about, you know, it's, it, the treaties are, are still meaningful um, um, documents and, and uh, help us as tribal nations orient into our spaces and understand, you know, our current condition. So I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the either or of like more control or just like ultimate freedom. I think the ultimate freedom route is is not exactly, you know, what freedom to maintain <laughs> the, the 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 status uh, recognized in treaties. It, it is to, you know, destroy the kind of um, operational um, and, and recognition of sovereignty and, and separateness that are oriented in the treaties as well. So I think I, I, but I do think those two um, ideas dictate, you know, the federal policies, you know, starting, you know, um, you know, I think after the end of the treaty period in the rest of the US, like in the 1870s, you have this, um, you know, attempt to reduce land holdings by the tribes and put them, make them all farmers with with individual or family plots of land, and that allows for other you know, big rushes of land because of whatever is left over after those allotments, right, are, are open for, for settlement. And then um, by the time you get to the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, especially into the 50s, you have this real move and you have this in Maine as well um, towards termination of all of the rights and treaties and just get rid of the whole system um, that kind of recognizes and supports um, um, uh, the treaties and the legacy of the treaties and of course tribal sovereignty. So I think at, at various times these get mobilized both here in Maine and, and federally, but it is as as Harold mentioned, this idea of a, a zeitgeist and you know it's it's often you know the control is, is <laughs> the control approach um, is often um, in the federal policies in the in the 19th century compared to like, you know, extended periods of war, you know, so they're also like, you know, playing out the, the logics of how much will it cost to just wage dramatic wars in the in the Midwest or Southwest, you know, during the 19th century, or, you know, how much will it cost to kind of keep with this system of control and and sort of 
manipulations around treaty systems and they chose, you know, and, uh, and then uh, the, the, the dramatic forced assimilations, you know, these are, these are the forced assimilations are put forward by groups calling themselves the friends of the Indians, right? I mean, our friends are the ones having, <laughs> you know, compelling the government to like, you know, give individual plots and sell off the rest of our lands. Um, I mean, with friends like that, I don't know what you're going to do, but uh, this, I think, you know, these systems are caught up in this like control versus, you know, destroy the, the actual, um, you know, recognition of us as, as, as sovereign nations as well. Yeah. So, you know, I was just sort of, I don't know if this, uh, if this fits into this in, in any way, but I got an, uh, an idea that this sort of um, smacks a bit of, uh, of slavery, their attitude towards slavery, like make them work their own land, make them uh, pay for their own, their own way, or, you know, just a forced, forced labor kind of situation. So I, I think that people who have compared in the past uh, Maine to the South weren't that far off, you know, because you get cotton plantations in the South and paper plantations in the North, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting point you're making, Donna, because I was thinking the exact same thing as you just did. And I thought to myself, and I used earlier the term capitalism, and that's an important uh, term here because uh, capitalism comes into full force uh, in the 19th century, right? It's, uh, it, has, uh, it's, it has its beginnings uh, much earlier, but uh, it comes in full-blown force uh, to the foreground in that period. And that's also the period of the emancipation of slavery and the anti the, and the abolition of slavery movement and what is a very controversial subject is to what extent uh, the replacement, namely the abolition of slavery, what, to what extent was it actually beneficial to the um, to the owners of the means of production, which is the land, right? So the means of production as land. So you see two simultaneous processes going on. Uh, cheap labor, because uh, slavery is not entirely free labor, uh, it's purchased labor, right? And it costs uh, to, uh, to maintain and keep uh, slaves healthy. Uh, it's, it's just like if you have horses or any kind of chattel, uh, you don't benefit uh, from uh, seeing your slaves all wither away because of maltreatment. There was a lot of maltreatment, but it was not economical, right? So from a profit-making perspective, you want to keep your labor force healthy uh, and as productive and as long as possible. So on the one hand, you have the, uh, the, uh, the uh, expansion of the labor force through natural reproduction, which is why the international slave trade gets prohibited. There's enough of the black slaves in the Americas to reproduce themselves um, in multiples. Um, and meanwhile, uh, land, which is still occupied in a quote, unproductive manner by indigenous peoples that can become much more productive through agriculture rather than through hunting and fishing and gathering. So there the expropriation one way or the other, either by extirpation and make sure that they no longer exist or by treaty, which we just discussed as, as an alternative, you buy them off, right? So meanwhile, that land, so I don't think necessarily that ind indigenous peoples were seen as a, uh, as a useful labor force because they had a place to run away to. 
namely what, which was still out west, right? So a lot of native peoples escaped from the yoke by uh, by moving out west. So you get an incredible mi migration and, and then a policy by the Indian Removal Act of, of uh, 1830 uh, that drives out the, um, the the tribes east of the Mississippi uh, across the Mississippi and the Missouri to what then was still seen as quote wilderness or desert or whatever it was it was and then of course the white uh, rush takes over right in the uh, after um, in particular after the American uh, Civil War in the uh, 1860s and that's when you get the Great Plains Wars and the final. Uh, mopping up raids that then end pretty much in 1890 um, with the massacre at Wounded Knee. So that um, history that you were just referring to in terms of comparison with slavery, there's a big difference. One is cheap labor, the other one is cheap land. And labor and land are both seen as key ingredients to the production of wealth. And that wealth is in the hands of uh, landowners. So that's also why that immigration is encouraged from Ireland of poor workers and poor people from everywhere in the world start getting into the factories, right? The, uh, the, uh, the cotton is produced in the South, but it's uh, manufactured uh, in New England, right? All the cotton mills in Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Uh, and there you get a very cheap labor force of immigrants who have no way of going back, uh, who are, whether they die soon, there will be another immigrant to replace them. So one inhuman system is not solved by the abolition of slavery is simply replacement of cheap labor, in this case, from the huddled masses, the huddled masses, right? It's cheap labor. So meanwhile, the owners of the means of production, the capitalists, accumulate their capital with the same great disdain toward Indians, Blacks, Irish Catholics, because this is also the period, of course, well into the early 20th century of the Ku Klux Klan, for example. We all know that in Maine, the Ku Klux Klan movement was big, but it had nothing to do with uh, uh, African-Americans. It had to do with the Roman Catholics from Canada, right, Quebec. And so um, you get this incredible uh, capacity of an elite that continues and a new uh, emerging uh, people into that elite that capitalizes on the exploitation of both land and labor. And American Indians provide the land, African-Americans and cheap immigrants provide the labor. Okay, so um, what I'm thinking is if there's, if there's no more uh, comment or thoughts on this piece, the Dean era, we can move on to the Proctor report. Can we do that? Okay. Yeah, of course. So in, in 1942, you know, we have uh, the Proctor report where they look at the history of the tribe and the state, and they see that, you know, they, they want to find out what's going on, who is the tribe costing them a lot of money, how can we uh, address uh, this uh, money that we are paying out to these tribes, um, particularly in a time of war, 1942. So they, they're, they're looking closely at how they can get around uh, this expense that they've been paying out for for years. So, uh, any comments? It would, and the question in that the questions in that report was stuff like, you know, do we owe the Indian any money? What's an Indian? Uh, so, are there any comments on this 
this Proctor report? Um, I'll ask Carol first. Yeah, again, I'd like to place things in a larger context, and you already did it by A, placing it in a World War II context, um, but I'd like to also place it in another context, and that's uh, eugenics. And uh, the uh, eugenics we now think of uh, uh, and associate with Nazi Germany, but of course it was very popular also in the United States. And um, a lot of people will not know the name of Madison Grant, uh, but Madison Grant was a trustee of the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And he was a, um, a naturalist, if you will, but he wrote a very famous book, uh, I think it was 1916, if I remember, in, during World War I. And that book is called The Passing of the Great Race. And the passing of the great race referred to, in this case, to the Nordic, Northern European race and their descendants in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and the United States primarily. So what you now would refer to as the, quote, white race, but then specifically uh, of Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Germanic uh, peoples from Northern Europe. And he had this theory that uh, the incredible uh, huge population in Asia, in particular in China, and also the huge population uh, and population growth of uh, Latinos and Africans, that the, um, that the Nordic race would be swamped out in terms of reproduction. And I should say that part of what is the support group of Make America Great Again uh, today is building, although it's not stated as such, on the same fear of being, um, being wiped out by mass immigration across the border with Mexico, for example, but also the immigration across the Mediterranean. But it's this uh, whole idea. Well, that book by Madison Grant, which should be required reading uh, as far as I'm concerned, because it's, it's not just a indicating of where um, a large section of the American elite, the white American elite, how it thinks at that time, and he articulated that in that book, uh, but that book was translated in the early 1920s into German. And the German translation came into the hands of Adolf Hitler in the 1920s. And he referred to it as the Bible. So when he writes his book, Mein Kampf, My Struggle, right? Uh, when he comes, rises to power in, in Germany, that then uh, results in a, um, in a kind of situation mm -hmm as we are now contemplating what happened on January the 6th in this country, uh, what happened with the takeover in 1933 uh, in Germany. There's a huge number of huge warning posts in this country about a, and there's no other word for it, a fascist movement in this country, race-based, race-baiting, um, and very, very dangerous with a lot of people, even in the elites, uh, who don't realize, because they don't know history, or if they do know history, they don't know it well enough, is to know that history does occasionally repeat itself, but although always in a different shape. And I'm extraordinarily worried in this country about these movements, because people forget that the Hitler support did not just come from the working classes. They were paying with their blood, if you will, but a huge number of the German aristocracy was from the very beginning a member of the Nazi party. So likewise, you see in this country, many people who are very wealthy, uh, highly educated, uh, they should know better. And for God knows whichever reason, they um, are supporting a anti-democratic 
um, anti-multi-ethnic uh, society, which America is, and want to impose a vision by uh, cheating if necessary or in, uh, intimidating others to get out of the way in their grab of power. So what we are now realizing, what has happened in this country just a half a year ago, um, happened before, and it is not unique. And a lot of people who are looking at history um, are greatly worried. And it's the people who willfully proceed, including with a media takeover, uh, such as, and I don't need to mention which channels, we all know which channels it are, is a massive indoctrination and a massive delusion on the part of many people who don't realize to what extent they're being used as tools and as instruments for power in the hands of a very manip manipulative, very ruthless, um, small elite. And they will go over dead bodies. And um, so when I look at indigenous history, as you can tell from my comments, I often place these things into a larger, sometimes global context, because these are going beyond simply Proctor Report. The Proctor Report, uh, the Dean Letter, are all uh, manifestations in writing of their time in a larger cultural setting. And Darren, as an anthropologist uh, like myself, um, knows the importance of situating these documents, if you will, in their cultural context. Here. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's so. It, what's interesting, I think, between the that you know the, the the connection between the Dean letter and the Proctor report, and you can, you know, um, earlier on in the twentieth century, there was um, a report commissioned by um, the federal government. Um, on the status of Indians called the Miriam Report um, from 1928. Um, and it has some of the, uh, some similar kind of orientations. You know, I think the Proctor Report is, is um, not as forceful perhaps with its uh, recommendations, say as the Dean Letter or even the Miriam Report. Um, there's a lot of kind of study on the content, you know, it, it comes across as a study, although there are these sort of, there is some <laughs> sort of racist language and, and, you know, uncritically mobilized around uh, things, but there, there's, you know, there, there's other language there as well. But I think, I, I do think that the tenor of this report, which is um, to, to, to lay out, I think, yeah, the situation of the Indians and how burdensome this situation is to the state. I mean, he's writing it for the legislature and the executive committee. It's 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 to kind of figure that out. Um, I see it as advocating for um, you know to a certain extent the the the, the dissolution of the tribes. Uh, I think that that it does set up that debate. Um, um, towards termination of sort of the the overall status again, kind of it, it's so hard to disentangle the the um, prediction. You know the the idea that things are always getting worse for Indians. It, it, it's hard to dis disassociate that kind of like uh, they're all just poor and they're going to disappear with you know, the, the fantasy, the settler fantasy is that they will just disappear, you know, that, that there's an investment in that narrative. So it's, it's hard to, 
to, to, to do that. But I mean, there's some pretty dramatic um, things that are not good uh, for Native people in the 1940s. Um, I think in reading it, it's surprising that most of these trust funds are kind of, you know, they're in the state treasury and, and they see the, the, the interest on the, the, our funds as the only sort of source, uh, which, you know, funds the majority of, of what is being done for us is that, you know, there's a principle of, you know, the 50,000 for the four townships or, or whatever. And they, you know, they play with some of, you know, the, the unspent monies and that the state seizes them. And, you know, if you read really carefully, you're like, you know, it's, it's, you know, to, to your, to the, and there's some more detail in, in, you know, um, your report that you put out, Donna, One Nation Under Fraud, that, you know, that there is, you know, very much fraudulent pieces to the, the background of the misuse of the trust fund. But I, ironically, we're, we're only supposed to mostly get sort of interest, the interest on, on funds raised. And even in timber sales, like we don't get the principal, the principal goes to the state and then we're supposed to benefit from the interest upon that. Um, I, I find that the idea that then this is some crazy burden upon the state, which is kind of written that way, um, as really dubious. Um, and so I'm interpreting it as a kind of, you know, let's just get rid of everything and, and close the books on this uh, sort of Indian problem. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's, you know, one way to interpret the Proctor report. Um, and I think, but I do think this World War II context, you know, in terms of purse strings and the, you know, where our money's kind of located, um, that that's one of the key contexts to this report. So it's hard not to read into like, you know, at the beat, you know, 42, um, a major war effort, um, um, recognizing that it's going to take time and effort and monies for, for a war effort, um, all those and the, the recognition that costs of things are going up because of the war, you know, that's in, in there, like, um, you know, overseas wars even now impact the cost of things, you know, globally. Um, so I think that that's, you know, that, that's a further context to how to read this report um, uh, as well. And then you see sort of moves, you know, in the fifties um, towards this kind of termination of the whole system uh, under Muskie and others kind of uh, asking for that. But I think, yeah, I think it's a really, um, I always include the Proctor report in its writing as, you know, one of these critical moments of insight into Maine Indian state relations because it, it captures some of the logic. Um, that that's really kind of shifting uh, even in, in the 40s. Yep, so I look at the, uh, the Dean report and the, and the Proctor report uh, as basically, you know, doing the same thing. They using a coercive system, um, you know, make, put the Indians to work, but really just to pay for whatever they, you know, pay for their existence, send them to vocational training, you know, pay for their crafts or whatever. Um, and uh, in res and restrict what we what the state pays them. You know, just just kind of keep them under and keep them poor. Uh, so in all of this context, with the uh, with the dean letter and the Proctor report, then comes the land claims. 
So the land claims, um, I think basically the, the outcome of that land claims and the most important piece of that land claims in my view is the fact that it has, uh, it has looked at the tribes as municipalities and put them in that category. So that even the, the, the courts look at the tribes as a, sub, as a political subdivision of the state of Maine. Um, and uh, I know it's done, a, uh, I know there's another, a bunch of other things that the claims have, you know, this, what, the, what they've done, a lot of the issues that have, have come up. So, and, um, so Darren, I'm gonna let you talk about a couple of those. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I just want to make clear a couple of things because I um, just how <laughs> how big of a poison pill the municipality language is um, in in the Settlement Act, um, partly because we have these cases of in, in 1979, state versus Dana and Bottomley versus Passamaquoddy, one, one, one a state case and one a federal case. Um, that that basically say Maine tribes, right? Our tribes have the same sovereign status as other tribes. Um, uh, the state versus Dana case holds that state criminal laws are not necessarily applicable to Indians on Indian land, which is, you know, consistent. You know, <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, the definition of Indian country under federal law uh, counts in Maine. And then uh, the Bottomley versus Passamaquoddy case um, held that the tribes basically have the same sovereignty as other federally recognized tribes under federal law, uh, among other things. And then in the legislative record for the Settlement Act, you know, when questions came up around the municipality language, people saying things like there is, you know, this is not a uh, a decrease and 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 only an enhancement of uh, the the main tribes and their well being. You know, you have these sort of blanket statements that, you know, again, reviewing courts have really focused in on the inclusion of that 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 um, municipality language, which you know uh, goes a long way uh, in terms of preventing us, you know regulating our own lands, resources, you know, forms of economic development, et, et cetera, et cetera. The other major, you know, cut in, in the law is, is the section that um, says the, the main, you know, the signatures to uh, the, the Settlement Act are exempted from future federal laws um, that impact Indian tribes. Um, so it, it it's such a dramatic shift if you see it, those two cases from 79 normalizing <laughs> and recognizing the normalization. And then you have this, you know, you know, at the state's request, primarily, uh, these the insertion of these two clauses, which are the you know, the biggest sort of um, clauses related to um, sort of poison pills. Um, you're absolutely cutting us uh, off at the knees as tribes and, and very much supporting the state's interests uh, to um, have more and more control over uh, tribal life um, and, and seeing this as an opportunity, the Settlement Act, to do that. It, and in a way, and we've mentioned this before, where 
none of the monies from the Settlement Act are from state, uh, the state of Maine. Uh, they had did not have to pay anything <laughs> for this. To, I mean, they got for free what they wanted. Um, and in some ways with the timber company lands that were that were bought and sold and, um, you know, kind of got, a, a, in, in essence, a, a little bit of a federal bailout uh, to kind of a, a crisis in, in property uh, um, and, and, and insertion of money to large landowners in the state. So I think it's just the, the 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 politics around this, as you know, Donna, is like, oh, well, the tribes got something dramatically significant with this $81 million. And we, the state, you know, um, had to, you know, forfeit something. I, 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 no one's been able to explain exactly what the state forfeited in the Settlement Act, by the way. Um, they just presume it to be the case. And then they'll mention the $81 million. And I'll be like, oh, well, that's federal money. So the people, I mean, even reporters, Donna, I'm sure you're aware of this, say that the state had to pay $81 million to the tribes. I mean, it, it, that would make sense because they're the ones that took our lands and money. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would agree to that, but that's not the situation. And, and to have this, like, these clauses that really assert such dramatic state control in, in what is otherwise a land claim settlement, right? A, a, I mean, the state, first of Massachusetts and then the state of Maine signing these illegal treaties, um, according to the, the Passamaquoddy v. Morton and, and subsequent cases, that they would somehow win, <laughs> win the day by settling basically what was becoming a clouded title situation in the state of Maine because the, the, the many of the deeds built upon these treaties were now uh, clouded because you know, the court had said, these these treaties don't you know broke federal law um so i think you know that's what i would say you know in terms of the two major issues you know and there have been a lot of energy to solve each of these questions the municipality language um with ld 1626 failing um that remains still the primary framework of our sovereignty uh and its limitations um and then in terms of the federal law application, you know, there's um, HR 6707, um, which is in, um, in, in Congress in Washington, DC in the federal Congress uh, to fix that part of the, the law. And, and, and it seems to have some momentum and possibilities to for future um, um, federal laws impacting um, federally recognized tribes that we would we would not have this requirement to be <laughs> to be um, stated specifically to, to, for them to be applied there. But um, as you as you know, Donna, the 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 things like the Stafford Act, um, which is emergency funds for for disasters and the Violence Against Women Act, um, um, also the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act. Um, and any host of, I believe, 150 federal laws that that would um, be uh, really support our tribes, um, we've missed out on um, because of this clause. And and it's just, it's just a the clause just is such a <laughs> naked. I, I think that that more over the municipality because they were able to kind of like say no, it's for your you know municipality strikes me as like people kind of bought 
some of the explanation of like, oh, it's just to kind of protect you when the state comes, you know, like da 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 da. But that is the 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 the, the federal law is not applying. Um, was such a naked expression of what the state wanted to do, which is to cut us off, right, from our sovereignty and our connections with the federal government. Um, and I mean, I'm very hopeful that 6707, you know, makes it through and and we solve it going forward. But it does. It's still, you know, the legacy of what we, you know, have missed out on is is absolutely there. Carol. Uh, an important um, thing here is, of course, uh, with that language of municipality is that it is a uh, situation that really um, emerges in uh, 1790. Uh, the whole case of the Main Indian Claims Settlement Act would not have happened if the argument had not been made that the treaties of uh, 1793 and 1796 were respectively the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot if they were not thought to have been in violation of federal law as articulated in the uh, Non-Intercourse Act. And the claim was made by Massachusetts and then by uh, the state of Maine as the successor of Massachusetts with respect to the territory now called Maine, is that the tribes fell under the jurisdiction of the Commonwealth and later of the state of Maine. So what you get, you get there is a subaltern position of the tribes under the state. The relationship of uh, the Cherokee, for example, uh, that becomes a big court case later, is whether or not the uh, tribes or nations are under state control or under federal control. And that was the whole issue um, of the definition of, uh, of an American Indian tribe as a domestic dependent nation. So what you then get, and you see that uh, worked out in all the casino issues all over the United States, is to what extent does a state have control over a tribe's um, uh, economic policy that would include casinos that would cut into the revenue for a state, for example? As you get all the, ha the haggling about that relationship between states and tribes, but the states and tribes in federally recognized tribes um, in the rest of the country uh, is that, that, the, that the tribes are not subaltern to the state. And that's an important piece. And in Maine, the history is that the tribes are subaltern to the state. And in the compromise of the Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act, because it was a compromise that only was um, uh, signed as a law by Carter and negotiated without debate, it was accepted by both the Senate and the House uh, in, uh, in Washington was that um, the cloud of title, that Darren earlier referred to the cloud of title, but it was a cloud of title over two thirds of the main, um, two and a half million acres, where people couldn't raise money for bonds, for example. So the cost and insecurity of ownership was enormous. And both the tribe and the state in this collision course risked too much to play this out into the, into the court. They weren't sure either way whether if this court case would be won by either way. So they came to this compromise. And what we now see is that in that negotiated deal, because that's really what the uh, Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act is, is that the state of Maine held on to the idea of the tribes being subaltern to its authority in Augusta. And that is different from, let's say, the position of the, of the let's say, the Lakota in South Dakota or the... Cheyenne and Oklahoma, you name it, all these other tribes have a, a relationship in which they are not subaltern to, uh, to the state, 
whereas in Maine, historically, they were, ever since Maine, in essence, ignored uh, Massachusetts, therefore, ignored in 1796, when it signed the treaty with Penobscot, they ignored the Non-Intercourse Act. And that came to haunt um, uh, the, the politics of today, if you will, right, in our generation. We are now old enough to say in our generation, but the next generation doesn't know that. So all the big players, in this case, um, Senator William Cohen and George Mitchell, who fought very hard for a deal that at that time was thought to be beneficial to the tribes, and Tim Love and the other governors at the time were all under pressure to come with a negotiated deal. But the problem is of, and this is the final thing I want to say about this, is that the paradigm of an indigenous nation as a sovereign entity, which is the whole definition, Donna, of your whole series, uh, number one, is that paradigm of sovereign nation that does not uh, match the position of the main tribes as municipalities in the way it was defined in the main in the Landscape Settlement Act. And that's basically two different paradigms that need to be worked out and will be worked out ultimately through this ongoing pressure, um, both politically, legally, uh, and through education, like your radio show today, right? Your radio show is to try to show how, um, how a negotiated settlement is a, is a compromise, but it's not justice. And that's the key thing. Okay. Well, thank you both for being on the show today. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. And I, I do want to thank Professor Harold Prince and Professor Darren Ranko uh, for being on the show. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>